you know, logistics is where all the money is happening. And if you really want to focus on your product to the customer, like you really do have to get that part right. And it's also, I'm the first to say like, it's a commodity and it's freaking smoke and mirrors. Welcome to Subscriptions Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today, we have a special guest, Paul Jarrett, who is the co-founder and CEO of Bulu. Paul, welcome to the show. Yo, how's it going, man? It's awesome. Looking forward to it. You and I crossed paths a couple of years ago, I think, out at Subscription Show, so it's been a while. So I'm very interested to hear, you know, what you guys got going on over there at Bulu. But let's start back at the beginning for the listeners. Tell us a little bit about the company, how you got it started, and kind of where you guys are at today. Uh, yeah, we started officially, I believe it was April 12th of 2012. But before that, I think my wife and I were kicking ideas around December of 2011. And uh, we got started... We kind of always knew that we wanted to do something. We always thought it was going to be an advertising agency because that was our background. And so we we're kind of going from agency to agency. And I kind of tell people, like, we got really tired of selling air, <laughs> you know, brand and image and all that, which is important for certain companies. Right. But, you know, no matter where we worked at, we always ended up, you know, in like new launch of brands, new launch of programs. Yeah. We're always felt like doing something physical, whether it was guerrilla marketing or working with consumer packaged goods. And so, you know, we worked in New York City, San Francisco, Nebraska. We're from Nebraska, so that's where we started. And, you know, after a while, we were in San Francisco and we were getting a ton of work as freelancers. I mean, we were literally doing like uh, Facebook pages for NFL and Visa. And, you know, these projects were coming towards us for like 60K and we're like, whoa, yeah, can we do these things? And it was just this moment of like, you know, looking at the work and going like, this is all social media and e-commerce stuff, right? And then, then it was kind of like going like, wait a second, most of our career has been, you know, e-commerce. Tried to launch a site in like 04 or something like that. And um, I don't think either one of us would consider ourselves e-commerce specialists, right? But as time went on, we're uh, living in San Francisco, both working at ad agencies. We both worked on the creative and the account side. Freelance work is coming in, which was cool with our agencies. Um, we're actually getting work from our agencies, you know, to do stuff at night. Okay. And so they were uh, yeah. clearly cool with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just had a lot of wins under about when we worked together. Our first job, we worked together. Um, this is my wife and my co-founder. Stephanie Jarrett. So yeah. I just start off by saying we, because I don't know a world <laughs> without yeah, it. Right. So we were working together at different ad agencies, you know, or maybe I was a client, she was an ad agency or vice versa. And we're just always working together. And uh, we were running a half marathon in San Francisco and there was a bunch of samples at the end. And being from Nebraska and now living in San Francisco, I was like, my gosh, they're giving me like a sample of New Balance sneakers, you know? And then I remember milk as like grabbing gallons of this Whole Foods milk. I'm like, this is worth so much money. You awesome. know, Nebraska kid just like loading up, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we got home and I was like, you know, it's just insane that, you know, so many stores sample. I worked in consumer packaged goods and for a vitamin and supplement company. I said, the only way we got people to change flavors was to just sample it in the store, just give it away. But, you know, nobody could ever tell me what the ROI on a sample packet was. And we knew it was huge and we knew it was like in store sampling all that stuff was huge 
And so I just said, you know, we're sitting there all beat up from our half marathon, you know, rifling through our bags. And I was like, wouldn't it be crazy if we could just get the ROI of one of these or just get the email? Like, why didn't they take my email, you know, giving me a pair of shoes? And so that was the nugget of the idea was how can we get samples into people's hands at the bare minimum, get an email, but can we actually eventually figure out what the ROI is on it? And so we're searching around and we stumble on a birch box and there's kind of nothing else out there like it. And I remember I Google searched sample box for vitamins and supplements, assuming that it was there. I actually wanted to go sign up for it because I saw a birch box and I thought, oh, this must be a thing that I'm not aware of, right? Yep. Which side note at the time, I was uh, one of the early users of Uber. And I remember it was this junkie map. I think it's called Uber Taxi. And uh, I remember I had just got an email from like this startup from the founder and they were like, we screwed up or whatever. And I remember it was like the same day I canceled Uber because I was like, ah, oh, this thing's just garbage. You know, I like deleted Uber. And, you know, here we are back at our place after an Uber ride for this junky app, right? And then we're searching online for this sample box, uh, you know, for vitamins and supplements. And it just didn't exist. And my first thought was I misspelled vitamins or supplements, right? Mm-hmm. And I looked and I was like, wait a second. And then I went to Birchbox and I kind of did like this built with tool to see. I was like, oh, wow, they're just getting started. I used uh, the history of, you know, I forget what it is, um, but it's like online history of websites. And I was like, whoa, they just launched. And I was like, this is a super smart idea, right? And so that just kicked off the idea of like Birchbox, but for vitamins and supplements. You know, we really looked to them for inspiration in the model, right? And then um, we came back and we pitched the idea. We were coming home for the holidays and we pitched the idea and like our first go around of a pitch in Nebraska, which our point was to go home for the holidays and pitch and mess up, right? And uh-huh. then come back to the Valley. And, and then like, come back. Right. Yeah. Uh, but Rehearsal. our first pitch ever, which is like embarrassing because it was 48 days after the original idea we landed just over a million bucks and i was like this is crazy this is lucky we should take this money and go and we launched and our curse was that we did everything that we said we were going to do and kind of nobody knew what to do with us right because it's like this consumer Uh package goods you know we have software investors but we have this physical thing birchbox was kind of in a weird spot there was no dollar shave club and you know, they were called sample boxes back then and nobody, yeah. everybody kind of hated them. They were like gross. I remember somebody said, oh, you guys are like the new couponing website, <laughs> right? Because there's all these online social kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and here I am thinking yeah. like, well, yeah, but all we're really doing is multiple items together and charging as a subscription. That's actually been around forever. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so we did that. We grew to about 500K monthly recurring revenue. We weren't profitable because that wasn't the plan, right? It was just grow, grow, grow. We had the CAC, LTV, all that stuff down. Went to go present and raise more money and just crickets. You know, that was a tough lesson for me to learn is you can have the numbers, but you still got to have the story and you have to have the right investors, right? And so we're going back to software, you know, kind of seed stage stuff, uh, software people. And they're like, what is this? We're not 30 million. Are you crazy? And I'm thinking warehouse, you know, physical items and you know the market people are hanging up on me i remember the worst was uh i called this person and i used calendly and i talked to them forever and finally the guy the investor goes 
so back to this calendar app and I was like, what? And he's like, the thing that you sent me, I was like, oh my gosh, he thinks I'm Calendly. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you're not Calendly? I was like, no. Exactly. Like, okay. no. I was like, oh. oh and so, yeah, we did that and we just kind of get there, you know, that's on me as a CEO and, you know, that's fine. It was just bad timing. Right. And so we looked at what we had, we ended up building pretty much the LinkedIn.com for consumer packaged goods. It became what's called Range Me. So in our spare time, we built a software, got lucky on that. We sold it. We sold it for way less than it was worth. We had to sell it to kind of like get by, right? And it did us right. And we were happy with it. And then by that time, we just had all these big brands coming to us saying, you know, either we want to acquire you for not a lot of money or, you know, I turned around and said like, hey, can we build a box for you? And that was when things really took off because we really just laser focused on launching boxes for companies. And we were double and tripling and things were just, you know, it was all finally working. And then COVID hits. One of the things that we were doing was we were actually selling them um, in store. So that's how we were getting just crazy numbers, right? We'd sell memberships for subscription boxes in GNC stores. I think we were in Disney for about three weeks and all their theme parks with three different boxes. And then COVID hit. Oi. <laughs> Oh, yeah, a terrible time. <laughs> this is my favorite one. We had two, maybe three with Clorox, two that we're going to launch. And it was all about green cleaning and all this new stuff. And um, they were like, yeah, we're going back to the wipes and like all the harsh chemicals. So like, forget, you're like, oh my God. They can't make enough of them, right? Can't, yeah, we can't, like we couldn't have picked. And here we were, you know, working with clients that were all diversified, but it was, you know, between the retail channel shutting down and just like a bad luck with the mix of clients. Even yeah. Crayola had some licensing issues of in the pandemic, what they could and couldn't do. And so it was rough. I would say that we really sat back and just like listened to the market. And what came back to us was just this influx of fulfillment. And so we said, hey, we're really good at that fulfillment thing. It's actually way easier. It's kind of hard to like untrain yourself of working with these multi-billion dollar brands, right? And so we started taking on pretty straightforward fulfillment work for mostly subscription, direct-to-consumer, CPG, e-commerce, kidding, subscription. That's our very defined sweet spot. And then those clients grew. You know, now we're adding on like pick and pack and we're right in the midst of, you know, how big is our next warehouse that we need? What softwares are going to work? We upgraded all of our systems. So it's weird. It feels like a little bit like day one stuff. Uh, just before I got here, my co-founder and wife and I were sitting here looking at the budget and we're just like, man, that's so many people. How did that happen? Wow. How did all of this happen? Yeah. yeah. And like, do we just copy and paste that for our next warehouse? Do we want to grow that fast? You know, so like, it's interesting because I would say we've scaled a CPG company. We've scaled and sold like a software. And then we were really working as an innovation team for big brands. And that was great, but it's just a lot of eggs in a couple of baskets. And then now it's, you know, really, I would say that fulfillment really focused on SMBs or, you know, we work really well with entrepreneurs because we can just actually talk to them, <laughs> right? Yeah, speak that language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Whenever there's something going south, it's like, well, just pick up the phone and talk to them like you're talking to me. And it's like, oh, that's most entrepreneurs are wired the same way. So that's yeah. what we're doing. It's been a wild ride. You know, I definitely would say like, okay, we got this, we're growing crazy. And then boy, that COVID thing, it just was the gift that keeps on giving, right?
Well, I'm sure there was like some ups and downs out of that. I'll come back to that in a second. But one part of the story there that I kind of wanted to come back to and ask another question about, you said the first time when you went out and raised that, you know, pitched it 48 days after coming up with the idea, got a million dollars in capital, was able to sell the dream, right? You know, just got the right people on board. So what do you think was the difference between that and the second time around when you went out to try to raise that second series of funding and to use your words, got crickets? Yeah. You know, when you go the first time, there's no numbers to be subjective about. You're pulling Mm -hmm. all the data from, you know, market research and everybody knows the internet will give you what you're looking for. Right. Yeah. And so you can back that. And then the second go around numbers are subjective. Right. And I remember very clearly one of the biggest pain points was we did a lot of deals on Groupon and, you know, here I am looking at Groupon like, oh, that's a buck 28 customer acquisition tool of which, you know, X percent, it was pretty high, like end up becoming subscribers. So it was like, you know, I looked at it as just, I was kind of look at marketing as every single step. You know, I think a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to do this one marketing thing and then get people to sign up. And we look at it very much as like, it could be 20 steps, right? And if you'll be in your CAC, who cares, right? And I think just the word Groupon sent shivers down people's spines. But I was like, look, we've been doing Groupon for like, two years. We're the biggest seller in Groupon. Groupon's flying us out there. You know, they're like whining and dining us. And I'm like, we could do this all day. And there's a billion coupon sites out there. Why can't that be the strategy? You know, well, you got to focus on the target audience. I'm like, it's the same target audience, you know? So I think that was a real big pain point for specifically software investors, you know, just to go, why are you getting people through coupon sites? Right. And you're like, well, the same females that are going to sample vitamin supplements, healthy snacks with the goal of probably losing or maintaining their weight. That's the same user of coupons. Right. And so that's just also very subjective. You know, you just have CapEx, you bring up the word CapEx and they're like, whoa, warehouses for it. Like, I've never thought of that before. You know, you can just feel the call just go. Yeah. So I think mostly it was the numbers are subjective. And I learned like you still have to tell a great story and you still have to kind of save the world. Like you have to come with as much emotion and passion as you did the first time with a story. And I think I really failed the second time around, just talking to the wrong investors, leaving the numbers a little bit subjective. I'm very like black and white, right? And I just didn't really have a great story, which is still strange to me. I think I have learned this. If somebody's like, I'm a numbers person, odds are they're probably not. And they're afraid of like, they know they make decisions based on emotion. So my my flag goes Mm -hmm. up when somebody's like, I'm a this person, because that feels almost like projection. You know, right. the reality is 86% of people make decisions based on emotion. So you got to tell a story. You got to tell a story correctly with the numbers and you got to do it all seamlessly without unintentionally lying or stretching the truth. Right. Yeah. And that's really hard when you're competing against a lot of other people and, you know, just the things that you hear and say. One other example real quick was our CAC to LTV was pretty straightforward, right? Like money overhead, like it's kind of all in cost for like cost of acquisition and lifetime value was like based on historic, right? And then you get in the game and you finally start getting other decks or, you know, there's a point where you're going to acquire some people or, you know, investors might know something that you don't know. 
And then we learned some of the other subscription boxes, like their CAC was just simply an email list cost or like whatever. And they weren't counting overhead. They weren't counting like anything else. And then lifetime value was like a projection based on their opinion. And I remember one, well, a customer is actually somebody that hits our website, which I'm like, that is false. <laughs> right. And then that's the an life- interesting definition. Right. And then the lifetime value is like, you know, they're going to spend, I don't know, 70 bucks once a month for eight years. And it was like this LTV was insane. And that took me a really long time to understand that CAC and LTV are really as you define it and as you defend it. Yeah. And I don't even think a lot of VCs fully grasp what that means. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you got to come at people with the truth, but you have to tell it. Well, I remember we were just I was talking to this company and they were a competitor of ours, and but we have a good relationship. And I was telling our CFO, I was like, stop, stop putting us against them. Like they're just in a whole nother category of raising capital and not profitable. Like they're in startup world. And CFO was like, well, I think they're profitable. I was like, I don't think they are. And so I just flat out asked the dude on the call and I said, are you guys profitable? And he said, Yes. And he blah, 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 blah. And he said, and so if you remove software and sales from it, then we are indeed profitable. And I was like, oh, okay. So you remove your whole engineering team and your whole sales team are profitable. (laughs) And it was Uh so quick and flawless. Or see if I I, like, you know, it took him a moment to kind of pick up on it. I was like, said they weren't profitable. He said, well, they said they were, but they just had to remove some. I was like, I think that some meant the entire department. And so, you know, you just learn startups when you're pitching, like you're talking to a VC that gets 20 deals a week or whatever. You have to, in a way, just at least compete in that same orbit or call those people out. And that's hard. That's like a whole nother game. It's like politicians raising capital while they're trying to like run a city or something like that, right? Yeah. It's funny to hear you say that. It's another example, but, you know, I've been in subscription billing and payments now for close to 20 years. And I started on the merchant side. I'd never done that sort of thing before. I came in to do accounting and I got thrown into, you know, doing subscription payments. So we had these ways of measuring our collection rate. You know, how many billings did we send out the door? How many did we collect from them? And what was our pickup rate? You know, all that kind of good stuff. And that was our lingo. Well, then I started getting involved in the industry, going to conferences. And I would say collection rate and they might call it pay through rate. And another one would call it something else. But we all thought we were talking about the same thing. Yeah. And then when you take a little bit of time to go down a level and you go, oh, you're talking about cumulative attempts to collect on a particular billing versus each individual attempt. You know, you start hacking it all of these different ways and there's legitimate ways to look at it in all of those views, but it's so many times we think we're talking the same language and in fact, we're not, right? No, exactly. It's like this thing that even my team knows like, ooh, you better be ready. If you show them an Excel document, and there's word in a column, you better write a note defining what that is. Yeah. And before we do anything, you know, like a scorecard or whatever for the theme, you better really define what that means because we might need it now, but a couple of years from now, we might look back on it and we're going to want to mm-hmm. know what that data set is from. And, yep. you know, I am the guy in a room with Disney where I'm like, I'm sorry, I understand customer acquisition costs, but will you please just define it for me? And everybody chuckles or it almost feels like you lose a little credibility, but then the really smart people in the room, you can see them kind of turn on because they're like, oh, wait, he's asking. I know why he's asking that question, right? It's not because he doesn't know. He wants to make sure we're aligned. Yeah. My favorite was, uh, have you ever heard of spins data? No. So there's a, I forget if you Googled spins data, it's some retail turns, you know, how many products are pulled off the shelf on retail. 
and I was meeting with their team. So love you spins. This was years and years ago. And they kept referencing, it was a big meeting and they kept referencing spins and everybody was talking about it like it was water, you know, like a soda pop or whatever. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what spins? And they all literally audibly looked at me and started laughing. And I was like, I don't know what it is. And they're like, well, you know, it's this. And I was like, uh, no, I don't. And I was like, sorry, can you answer? And this guy was like, well, blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, uh, sorry, how about you, ma'am? And she answers. And then they all start kind of looking at each other. And this guy that was like the VP said, I apologize. I don't think any of us actually know the correct definition of spins. And I'm like, literally the software that you're selling, this giant booth and whatever, it's like a good metric for them. And it works, uh-huh. but like, they don't really know what it means. It's just like a number, right? It's like a four-star rating, right? I mean, not even that. It's just like this thing that exists that works. It's like NPS score was just a number, but you had no idea where the data came from or what the question was. So I can't agree with you more. And I think that's a thing where internally as a startup, especially when you start hiring on, we had a bunch of Walmart people come on and we're looking at what they're creating and we're like, that's this document that we have. Like it's, you know, don't redo, please, right? Like reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough thing to do. Um, I definitely recommend with entrepreneurs to find the operating system. If I can find one here, I got a bunch of books, but it's this EOS traction. Have you heard of this? Uh No, I don't get paid by them, (laughs) but if you go to EOSworldwide.com, it's a little cheesy. It's called Entrepreneurial Operating System, EOSWorldwide.com. It, okay. you, know, you can Check see it YouTube videos and stuff like that. But what I do love about it is it's essentially a playbook. Here's a quick, easy way to run the meetings. Here's your vocabulary. So, you know, we do have people on and we basically say like, here's the books and videos to watch and then hop in the project management tool and it all kind of makes sense a lot quicker. And if we're recruiting and we find somebody that was at a company that ran EOS, I mean, they can literally come in and just be working in a whole week. So there's a couple of different systems like that. But yeah, I like EOS because here's 30 tools, how to grade somebody, how to run a meeting. And then here's the vocabulary. And then here's how you run those 30 tools in a row. Yeah, our team, it's funny, they fought it like hell. <laughs> and then after about a year or two, they're like, yeah, we need to, uh, we have yeah. that we actually have implemented for us. So everybody went through that training so that everybody would speak the same language and understand it the same way. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And usually, you know, if we get off track a little bit, we're scaling right now and we're having some issues with a person, right? And, you know, if you use this tool, it helps you kind of like backtrack to the what they would call the core issue. And, you know, really it just came down to like, oh, wow, our IMS system really isn't working for this one client and it's causing all these other things. So instead of three people getting the blame and the solution being more people work harder, you know, more warehouse space, Mm -hmm. it actually turns into like, oh, we actually just got to pay 500 bucks a month for this little addition to our IMS to fix it. Right. And those problems that could go literally years, you can take care of them and kind of spot them relatively quicker. Um, I also tell people it really removes the like person to person conversation to like, hey, I'm just following the playbook. You know, I'm just following EOS. Don't be mad. Right. This is the thing. Yeah. Right. And so that's right. huge. Yeah, I can certainly see the benefits of that. I'll definitely check that out. That sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. Me and my team have had a number of meetings recently, just kind of retooling some of our processes, mostly around project management. 
you know, we try to do agile as best we can. If you ever find somebody who actually does 100% agile, let me know because I've never seen it. We do our version of it as everybody else does, but, you know, we're kind of going through that tweaking process. But just getting people back together to look at each other and go, okay, we've been doing this. This is what I'm doing and this is what you're doing. And yeah. how does that align in a way that we can be more efficient going forward? It just it yeah. helps tremendously. Yeah. Those efficiencies go a long way. It really people underestimate it. I think they actually have a software or somebody built one called Traction Tools that just kind of takes everything and puts it into a software. But we use EOS and we have like the, there's 30 PDS for the tools. And then we pretty much use Asana. We just kind of copy them over into Asana project management tool. And that thing's been a godsend. We've been with Asana since like day one. And, and again, we don't get paid for it from, we should by now, but man, yeah, you really can't put a price tag on a good project management tool and just streamline communication. And um, absolutely, when things yeah. start going a little wonky, I'm like, okay, are we using this? Are we okay? Like, we got it. Like, yeah, don't do that in Slack. Like, that's you know, that's a project management thing. It it, yeah. it dies in Slack. I'm like, things go to Slack to die. <laughs> you know, Slack is like, what are you doing for lunch? Not like, you know, here's an Excel file. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, At least so for we, us. Yeah, no, we're with you too. I mean, Slack is our primary communication tool. We use Jira for project management, you know, so kind of the same vein. But this is a good segue back into COVID because, you know, certainly for us, those tools became that much more important when I'm not sitting across, you know, the office from you and can walk up to you and have a conversation. Yeah. You have to communicate through those things, document what needs to be done and what's being done. Right. Have you seen the same? I trust that you have, you know, reliance on those tools. And how have you guys adjusted things as a result of that? We came to the painful understanding that we were very much like an in-person company. You know, we just did well, hands-on, you know, going to our office was like five minutes from our warehouse. And uh, I don't know, probably a couple months and we were just like, what is going on? You know, we're just not seeing each other or, or whatever. And so then we're like, well, let's make a daily 15 minute Zoom in the morning. I mean, we weren't even using Zoom. We were still messing around with like blue jeans and Google Hangouts or whatever. So, yeah, I'm, I'm the type of guy where like technology doesn't work once and it's going out the window. Like, I have zero patience for crappy technology. I will pay thousands of dollars more for, you know, one second faster on the internet. That's an exaggeration. But I'm just like, in our team, it's like talking about how cool it was that some company hires on and they're like, here's 2,500, go buy what you need. And I'm like, we literally say unlimited, <laughs> you know, we hire somebody on, like, you want to use your stuff? You want us to buy it? Like, what are, you know, just get whatever you need to do your job. And yes, this is the first test of the job, right? Uh, be yeah, right, kind of, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, I would say now we're at the point where, you know, most people don't want to go back to the office and we've figured it out, but I think it was a lot more sporadic communication. You want to text, that's fine. You want to Slack, that's fine. You want to Zoom, that's fine. You want to FaceTime, like it just doesn't matter. What matters is your tasks and your projects in Asana are getting done. I can definitely tell we're a bit more of a task-oriented company now versus a little bit more overall strategy. And I think that has a lot to do with when you're in person, you can kind of like grab a few people and talk through strategy. Right. And now it's, right. you know, you pick up the phone a yeah. dozen times and next thing you know, it's like, yeah. crap, I got to go pick up the kids from school. Mm -hmm. uh, and whereas before it was like, oh, hey, everybody's here or let's grab lunch and just talk through right. this thing. So that's probably yeah. been the biggest changes. We're a little too task heavy versus strategy and management, but we'll get there. Yeah. 
felt feel the exact same way. Yeah. And and when it all happened and we all went remote, we could work fully remote. It felt like we took our in-person culture and just started it doing it through interactions like this, right? right? Where where I had just seen you last week, but now okay, we're talking here and that's it's working. Okay, we feel okay. And as time went on, the weeks and then months went by, you felt like that started turning from a personal connection to a transactional interaction of, I need something, please give it to me, you know, so I can do my thing and go on to the next, right? And the tools facilitate that too, right? Even Slack and project management tools, they're like, all right, here's a project, here's, you know, things that need to be done. You start checking things off, everybody becomes transactional. So figuring out how to still do that because things need to get done, but to have that human interaction, that strategy, that creativity, that happens so much better face-to-face is uh, we're still trying to figure it out too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's doable. I have seen, um, there's some really cool whiteboard tools where you like put your whiteboard on a wall and then you point a camera at it and whatever you draw, mm-hmm. or we all got these remarkable two pads, but everything's still just a little bit clunky, you know? So yeah, we'll see. I, I think the part that probably drives me the most nuts is we were definitely way better at keeping our calendars when we were all around. But I'm curious if you have this thing where you, you like go to somebody's calendar, they don't have anything going on. You like call, you text, you email, or you send them an invite. Where the fart are they at, right? And then you're like the fourth time, you're like ah. And then the next day, they're like, hey, were you trying to get a hold of me? And you're like, why was it on your calendar? You know. And that's probably been the hardest thing for me is just. People, and most of the time they're like, oh, I was talking to somebody else, right? And you're just like, I told our team, just butt into Zoom, just make it all open. And then I was thinking like, should we just have an open room, period, right? Yeah. We were even tinkering around a little bit with VR, which is mind blowing, but a couple of people got motion sick. And we found out some people just didn't like the idea of they're in a room with a headset on and you actually can't see what's going on around the room. There's a room around them. Right. Yeah. Right. But you can set up a room and literally have a meeting just like in person, physical. That's been almost like I got a glimpse of the future through VR, but then quickly realized it's not going to work like this. It's going to have to be more like augmented reality because just kind of putting on something and fully immersing. How do you know the kid isn't going to you know, throw a football at you, right? <laughs> which, which will happen in my house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's true for so many of us, yeah. Pretty wild. I'm sure this is offside, but have you ever tried this Oculus or whatever? No, no, I haven't. It's like 300 bucks and you can have your desktop in virtual reality and uh, wow. just meetings and stuff. And you're just like, yeah. why are more people not talking about this? Like, is there another app that you have to get to go with it? Or is that kind of natively you can connect with somebody and kind of hold a meeting? So, so yeah, they can have Oculus or not. It just depends. I mean, Oculus is really like, I tell people, it's almost like, you know, your phone has an interface and you download apps, same thing. You put it on, there's like Oculus yeah. apps. And so, you know, Google's got a couple apps on there for mm-hmm. creating art, which you can just use as like a whiteboard. Yeah. You know, anybody in manufacturing, there's some really, really impressive you can make CAD drawings with your hands or CAD renderings and just hit a button and you got your 3D, whatever you built with play or whatever in virtual reality. So it's kind of wild. Uh-huh. I'll bet. The I'll possibilities are endless with it. Uh-huh, for sure. There are a lot of subscriptions on it too. Are there really? Yeah, yeah. Every game, it's like 10 bucks and then you want to actually keep playing. You got to buy coins and all that stuff. Of course, stuff. right. Yeah, right. My uh, kids tell me that all the time. It's free. It's free. And I'm like, it's so not free. Don't tell me it's free. This game is not free. Yeah. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I got a five-year-old who uh, he uh, scrubs toilets for gems. So <laughs> we actually got a like plastic gems to represent the gems in this game. Really? And so he earns physical money for cleaning toilets, mm-hmm. and then he exchanges those for gems, right? And then he has them in a little treasure box. And then when he wants to use the game, I got to approve him and I take the gems because I'm like, I got to make sure that connection of, yeah. you know, currency to the reality yeah. is there. Yeah. 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 I like that. I'm going to have to give that a shot. I have a six and an eight year old and my six year old son, he's all about the video games and uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good motivation right there. Yeah. I think for uh, one of their birthdays for my five-year-old coming up, they have these debit cards that you can manage. Mm-hmm. There's like two that. of them like apps, and they're pretty cool. I mean, you can yeah. set them up. So yeah, all sorts of you know, subscription on those too. Like yeah, it's just pretty fascinating. It's almost like if you can pick it up, it already is out there, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, speaking of subscription, where you guys are sitting, working with you know these box clubs, where have you seen things gone kind of in recent years, and where do you see it going to, especially in this post-COVID world, right? We went from everybody, you know, going to the store to trying to buy as much as they can online and even experimenting with subscription in some cases. Where do you see kind of the next wave there? I mean, we're talking a lot of these days about subscription fatigue and what consumers are going to do once they realize, oh my gosh, I've got 30 of these now. Yeah. So curious what that looks like from perspective. Yeah, I'm pretty bullish on subscriptions. I think I've been, you know, Probably before we ever started the company, I remember I was working at a company doing uh, textbooks and we actually came up with the first textbook rental program, which I was like, it's the same thing as, you know, buying and selling textbooks, just set a different way, renting and we're like a subscription. And I think almost every company that I've worked at, we launched like a membership program. And it's always just been mind blowing to me that it's almost like a given, if you have a customer base, 30% of them, if you have a decent subscription, they're going to sign up for it. Right. And I think that not to get too heavy here, but like, I really think that as long as that wealth gap between, you know, the uber rich and poor and that, that divide keeps occurring. Right. And there's incredible stats where my parents could work for three months and afford a diamond ring. And that same ring would take me like four years of work. Right. You know, the idea of my dad, like saving up a couple months and getting a Camaro, I'm like, that's insane. right? And that's like happening with everything. Right. And as that gap increases, I think it makes sense. And I think a lot of people are just kind of past even the concept of like, I'm going to pass wealth on to my kid. They're just like, I just got to like get by myself. Right. Survive. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, subscriptions is the correct word but also if you just start looking at things and going like well is that a subscription you know really is a mortgage a mortgage or is it more of a subscription and i think when you look at the mechanics of things and there's just so much commonalities you know we say subscription box because it's a marketing word right but what is it multiple varied items packed together shipped on some sort of recurring basis and all of a sudden you go well, that's like direct mail, right? Like that's uh, toothbrushes going in a plastic case to people who you know, have some sort of toothbrush membership or whatever is out there that exists, right? And so I think that different ways, membership program, loyalty program, subscription, you know, call it whatever you want. If you look at the mechanics of something being sent to somebody on a repeatable basis at a lower cost, I think as long as that wealth gap increases or it doesn't start moving the other way, I can't imagine a world where that doesn't exist. I mean, 
I don't want to buy a car, you know, I lease, which sounds insane, I know. But when I start to look at the parts that cost my time, frankly, what I do for a living, I'm like, yeah, I have zero time to change up whatever you change now. And I kind of let a converter sort of thing, you know, mm-hmm. like rotate my tires or any of the things I'm supposed to do. I'm like, no, that doesn't make sense. And, you know, I don't even want to yeah. do, but I was telling my barber the other day, I'm like, why don't you just get these, you know, if barbers rent chair space, right? I'm like, why don't you just get these other barbers on a subscription? He's like, well, I don't know how to do that. And I sit in there in the chair, I had like four different options. And I like literally set him up. I was like, here, just do this. And I recorded the screen and just punch in your credit card. And he's like, that's too complicated. I'm like, no, they just scan a QR code and they go. You know? yeah. And so I just can't uh-huh. make out a world where that doesn't happen more and more. I mean, our kids are being bred on these subscriptions on games, you know? So it'll probably like watch, it'll probably be like 30, 40 years and it will swing the other way where people are like, that was really dumb for everybody to do <laughs> subscriptions or whatever. But. You're making a really good point there that the macroeconomic environment has a big impact on this. It's not just businesses want to push subscription for the recurring revenue aspects. It's like this actually makes sense for people. Right. And I think if especially when you're talking about younger generations who are kind of operating in the way that you just described, which is, okay, I'm focused on something over here. I'm glad to subscribe to something for a monthly fee if I don't have to worry about it anymore. If it's not like an asset that I have to take care of and nurture, like a car is a, a great yeah. example. Heck, you know, Dyson's uh, tested subscription vacuum cleaners in Japan, right. right? But if you think about it, it actually makes a heck of a lot of sense. I just need it to work. And when it doesn't work, I don't want to have to deal with it, you know? That's the thing, right? Yeah, Ford, Volvo, and others, you know, the subscription car business, which in a lot of ways is like a lease, but with more things added to it to make it more comprehensive. But, you know, it's going to take time for consumers to kind of come around to that way of thinking to a certain degree, too. But if the way that younger generations are behaving is any indication, I agree with you. I think it's going that direction. Yeah, I mean, I would gladly pay Apple an annual fee or a monthly fee or whatever it is if I just always had the new gadgets. Right. Mm -hmm. Because how does it go now? I buy the newest thing like an idiot. Right. And then I do that. And then I got these old devices and we might use them at work or we might sell them or whatever. But, you know, there's always going to be a cell phone laying in a drawer. Right. Or like a watch that, you know, got cracked or whatever. And I'm just like, my God, the amount of money that we spend on this. You know, what's the difference of leasing business equipment versus leasing family equipment? Everybody's got TV, computer, et cetera. You know, if I could do that all with one place, like I'm gladly going to do that, right? Especially, I think the important thing is you just got to show people kind of the economics, like the reality of family gets a computer every five years, you know, here's what they spend and then they got to do this and then they got to do this and the cost of data transfer and whatever, or just pay us a couple hundred bucks every quarter and never worry about it again, right? I always think of like between more subscription and more e-commerce, do I see either one of those going down? No, people are going to want more stuff to their door. And when people do that, they're going to go, well, why don't I just get this put on repeat for a cheaper price, right? I finally drank enough ready-made protein where I'm like, I'm done with the powders. And, you know, today on Amazon, it pops up and I'm like, damn you, Amazon, you know, I'm going to say yes, right? And then I can't help myself. I got to do the math. And I'm like, well, I would have saved like 50 bucks over the last year, you know, had I did it that way, right? There's a couple other cool stuff like Magic Spoon. It's like a cereal, like a high protein cereal. 
their model literally won't work in retail. So like, that's the other thing that I think people really mm-hmm. are not understanding is like with retail failing, just that whole buyer method, right? Like you go in front of a retail buyer, you kind of pitch your product. People are now starting on Amazon and they're building up a base and then the buyers are coming at them. And I've watched people on Amazon who are selling like $40 million and you know, Target or Walgreens, you know, they're begging them to talk to them. And they're like, nah, that seems crazy. I ship you a bunch of product. And if it doesn't work, you ship it back. So yeah, it's just fascinating watching the whole thing turn. COVID really sped it up, which was cool. But yeah, it, yeah. Uh, it's obvious, right? Even last thing is like, even from a financial perspective, once you can watch a CFO grasp what subscription actually means to them. I've worked with those large companies where the CFO is born and bred, like products on a shelf, products off, you know, et cetera. And it's such a cool moment when you watch them click with subscriptions and they see how they can project. They're like, I want that. That makes a lot of sense. It absolutely is. I've had enough engagements of sitting down with a merchant who is a retailer, right? And they're experimenting with a, some subscription offering. Our sister consulting company does a lot in the petroleum space, and you've got a lot that are getting at car wash clubs, coffee clubs, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, they've been thinking transactional their entire career. <laughs> so when you start talking about subscription, and then you put together this list of, hey, here's just 10 high-level things. Have you thought about? And they go, well, no, 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 not really, no. It's like, what does that mean? You know, it's like, it's hard to describe, especially in short order, but it's just a shift in mindset, right? And it takes a lot of doing it and a lot of experience along the way. And, you know, fortunately, there's organizations like yourself and ours that are out there that have kind of been there, yeah. done that. So in terms of where Bulu steps in, I mean, obviously, you guys do the fulfillment side of the house. But, you know, given your background, there seems like there's a lot you can do, you know, upstream of that as well to help them put their product together. So where do you guys kind of bookend things? Yeah, so we're in a position now where we have a lot of inbound coming in of you know, we're, we're actually getting a lot of influencers like YouTube, like not okay. kind of big, but like really big. And we will, if a, a large brand comes to us and says, you know, look, we've been thinking about the subscription box thing. Step one for us is to put together a plan and which we actually have on our website. So people can kind of go download. There's a template. We have a YouTube video with it. It used to be kind of like our proprietary subscription box plan, but we're just a little bit more of the mindset of, well, let it out there and see what happens, right? And when we work with a client, we do a much more detailed kind of layout. And so if a company comes to us, we're not actively going and getting those companies because when they come to us, it's a pretty long process because we got to look at like, what are they doing for social media? What are all their assets that they have? And it kind of all gets calculated in. And then we've been able to, I think, I don't think we've ever been more than 10% off where if they say they're going to do certain things, like put us in X amount of shelves or just ads, you know, send us out in X amount of emails, et cetera, we can kind of project out the model. And I think people are really surprised at that. But after you've done 50 something subscription box type programs over a decade, you learn a thing or two, right? You know how it's going to go. Yeah, yeah. And so that's probably the biggest value, but those are definitely like, Big clients, big engagements, long process. And, you know, really since COVID, we're getting a lot of subscription entrepreneurs that they just really, you can tell, want the value of the same person that might have managed Disney is now working on your account, right? And our team just has so much experience. We have a lot of the same people that launched Bulu Box on day one to, my Lord, almost 10 years later. 
now they're helping these subscription boxes. Our clients are like one or 2000 a month. And there's just these little things you pick up, right? And you're like, hey, what's your website conversion and this? And a lot of things people are like, well, yeah, I'll check that out. We're like, no, it's really easy. Just do this, this, and this, right? And so I think that's why we're enjoying what we're doing, you know, working with businesses that the big brands are great, right? But they can throw time and money at problems. What's cool is when you get somebody that's kind of like barely eking by and they just kind of can't get over that breakthrough point. There always seems like with CPG, there's like 2000 is a really tough one to break over. And then for some reason, it's 10,000 and then 14,000 and 25,000 per month. Right. And so each of those takes a little bit of a like, hold your breath and go. And I think to have somebody in our position who can say like, well, let's calculate if the plants will be ready for you to ship at that time. Right. Like it's just a lot of hard math. It almost seems right. And I think our team's okay with saying like, well, it's 80% correct. That's enough for us to say, yes, sure. There's a lot of unknowns, but we think it's a pretty good bet, right? And it's been really cool. And it's the smallest things. When you email people and tell them their shipment's coming or you got their order, just add on like, hey, add a product for 10 bucks, right? Add rewards points. Just all these little things that you pick up over the years, like get yourself on Amazon. Don't worry about actually selling there. It's just good SEO, right? So yeah, yeah, it's really cool getting to work with like entrepreneurial type people where you can just talk to the person at the top and it's like change that day, right? Uh, definitely more chaotic because we got shipments coming in, you know, seven truckloads or something and we're like, who sent us this? What is this from? You know, is this bug pesticide? Is this for us? Like what the hell is this, right? So definitely been, kept us on our toes working with entrepreneurs and, and we can relate. Well, in one respect, like your ideal client profile or what sort of situation would an entrepreneur or business owner find themselves in that should be a good time to reach out to you guys? Yeah. So we tell people we're not actively pursuing large multi-billion dollar brands. They're more than welcome to talk to us. Our prices are high for them (laughs) because, you know, it just takes a while. What we think is high is probably, you know, it's just nothing to them, right? But, you know, those programs are done correctly. We do the creative, we do the research. It's hard to tell people in innovation that's have big brands, but it's like, hey, if you do what we say, it's going to work, right? And I remember we had that conversation with somebody and they said, well, it's got to be $10 million in profitable in year three. And we're like, okay, what do you mean? Okay, well, that's doable. They're like, you haven't even started yet. And we're like, well, yeah, we'll start. But it's a really large company and they had all these assets and, you know, they weren't on track and we had to fly up there and we're like, hey, can we like do what we're telling you to do now? Because we're catching hell for this, but we're not actually at that level where we're doing what we're telling you to do. They kind of yeah. you know, threw up their hands and were like, whatever. And, you know, just almost instantly. And it's, I think the thing is like, it's really hard to understand, but you know, if you do 10 cents more on 10,000 items for somebody and you do that five times over in a month, you know, you pay a couple bucks more, you don't ship on time or you get something wrong and you just do 10,000 new shipments. I'm like, your money is gone. Right. You did not need to do that. You know, you're not Apple, you know, and and Apple doesn't even do that. Right. And so, you know, those clients are great, but they take a long time. But I'd say for the people that we're servicing now, I say like, look, we are the place to go first in order to get your questions answered. We turn nine out of 10 people away. But our sales team, um, I still get on the phone quite a bit because I love talking to entrepreneurs way too much. But a lot of times people call and they just go, how are you getting cheap shipping rates? 
what are your shipping rates? That's like the number one thing, right? Right. And then we just tell them, and then we're like, you can go do it too, or you can benefit off of us. And then usually it's like, well, where do I get my cardboard boxes at? And we're like, well, here's what we do. Here's our contact, or you can go through us, right? And then really what you come to find out is that usually it's like one thing, and then we're always very aware of saying like, hey, if you had a good experience with us, just tell somebody else about us. And we're here to answer your questions, and if it's with us, mm-hmm. if not, no big deal. And that really has served us well. But what usually happens in you know one out of 10 calls is that people are like, you kind of just get this feeling, you go, are you just like tired of dealing with this? And they're like, yes. <laughs> and, um, and then you kind of go, you know, sounds like you really love your product. You didn't really think through this would be as much logistics. I'm like, not really. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> yeah. When we started Blue Box, right? Um, there was nobody out there. When we were doing fulfillment, we went through three firms before we just did it ourselves. And then I said, you know, like, Yourself. look, you know, there's going to be a cost up front. You know, it will be more money. But what you're paying with shipping and all of this stuff, once we get integrated, once we get the kinks worked out, after three months and probably a couple extra grand out of your pocket, that sucks, but you don't have to deal with it. And you're spending 20, 30 hours a week on a good week on it. And if something goes wrong, it just kind of nukes the rest of your month. And why not give us a try or, you know, one of these other companies and, you know, I went through the same thing and we acquired a fulfillment firm and then they were handling it and we just kept going, there's nobody to do this and oh crap, we're actually really good at it now. (laughs) And oh crap, a lot of people are asking us for it now. So I think that is, and I think the other big thing is like, you really have to do your homework on who has experience for what you need, right? You want relatively the same size. You don't want somebody too small because you might crush them. You don't want somebody too big because they get lost in the mix. You kind of want to be matching there. Yeah. You know, we are very into kidding and subscription. That's a very specialized thing. A lot of people will say they are, they're not really. You know, I tell people we're not the best pick and pack in the world. We're not like the fastest or anything like that. But when it comes to a kit that really has to be specifically done for the customer to open it and be like, whoa, look at that. Really where we come in. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I always yeah. say like, man, you start getting a couple thousand a month. It's okay to do it in house. Ten thousand a month, it starts getting really stressful. You get to fourteen thousand. Now you just have to decide: am I a logistics firm or actually this product? Because that's really what happens. My example is: your website is nothing without AWS, right? Everybody's always like, it's all about the product in front of the consumer. You know, it's like all about the car and the engine or whatever. I'm like, well, yeah, the car needs gas, and the website needs like a server space, right? And like. You know, logistics is where all the money is happening. And if you really want to focus on your product to the customer, like you really do have to get that part right. And it's also, I'm the first to say, like, it's a commodity and it's freaking smoke and mirrors. I mean, we'll still talk to other companies about they'll show us what they got quoted or have somebody go out and get a quote because sometimes we have overage and we're like, we need to go outsource this to somebody else. You look at the proposals and you're like, this is awful. <laughs> like there is so much in stuff in here. You know, thirty dollar pallet storage fee is like, and it is so frustrating. Yeah. And I know that you know when we're on the phone with somebody, that's like a huge battle to overcome. And I'm like, yeah, the industry is shady. Cardboard boxes are, shady. you know, all this stuff that's been around. It it is shady, and it is built to confuse you. Yeah. So let me help you out. Yeah. Shipping prices buying quantities of cardboard at a time 
and you know, really managing your cash flow and your terms, right? And those are not fun things to do. Yeah. That is so synonymous yeah. to what we do for payments because payment processing is the same crap. You know, they love those agreements and have all these individual fees in them. And they're like, oh, that probably won't apply or that won't add up. And then you're like, yes. oh my gosh, chargeback fee. I should have negotiated that down from $15 to five because man, I've got to deal with those, you know? So it's things like that. I mean, you can't blame people for not knowing. They don't know what they don't know, right? Exactly, right? And we like work a lot with her processing and it is like, you know, that's that thing, you know, for our bigger clients, like we'll handle it for them. But like, we're not dying to do customer service and, you know, manage payment platforms. But there's just sometimes when things get so big, like when you're shipping millions for somebody, you're just like, you know, just let us do customer service. Let us handle this other thing. But you do need the right partners. And, you know, we're not building any payment software. <laughs> Although the team wants to, I'm like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> That's a whole other thing. No, no, we're not doing that. But it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's wild because it's not fulfillment. That's the other thing. Fulfillment is a terrible description word. Payments is like a terrible descriptive word, you know? Logistics does a little bit more justice, but there's B2C, B2B, D2C, D2B. There is wholesale, there is e-commerce. Like when you start actually looking at all the different places where things are purchased and shipped and the different ways they're packed or whatever, I mean, you're talking like thousands of different processes and, you know, the fewer things that you can do more correctly, that's going to win. And that's really the problem in the logistics arena, particularly in subscription is marrying these old like .NET systems that were built on individual inventory with, you know, something on a phone that's operating with literally a flash of facial recognition. And like you need all go through the payment system, right? And so it's literally the like APIs and the communication gaps between this technology. And one little thing goes wrong and the subscription's kind of screwed. And I don't think people realize that until it happens in payments or deliveries. And you're like, oh no, right? Absolutely. Well, Paul, this has been a very fun conversation, and I certainly appreciate all of the insights and everything that you've shared today. If any of the listeners want to get in contact with you or more about Bulu, where can they go? Yeah, well, we're at bulugroup.com. I'm easy to find. I'm just paul at bulugroup.com, or uh, I think you can Google Paul Jarrett. That sounds pretentious as hell, but uh, it's for marketing purposes. So yeah, uh, we're not hard to find, and uh, we got a great team that... Uh, you know, usually just answers a few questions. And if you're interested, then we'll send you a little questionnaire. But odds are we're going to probably pass you on to uh, the person that makes the most sense for you. But that's not because we don't like it, because we want you to like us. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, congrats on all the success of 10 years. That I agree with you. The subscription future looks very bright. It's a fun industry to be in. And, you know, I think we got a long way to go. And thank you so much for having me on the podcast. And thank you, everybody, if you made it this far. If not, still thank you. <laughs> very true. Very true. Thanks so much, Paul. All right. Thanks, Steve. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.